So it begins, my brothers and my sisters, a new year. We've officially taken an off-ramp, and we've exited the season we call ordinary time. Our liturgical calendar begins anew today. So it wouldn't be unusual at all to say, look at that, uh, to drop your stuff. It wouldn't be unusual at all to say, Happy New Year. So turn to your neighbor, wish them a Happy New Year. All right, very good. It may seem like a silly little exercise, but sometimes these get us in the mode of thinking in a different direction. Plus, Christians have always been a little weird anyway, so, you know, why stop now? Um, what do folks typically do for New Year's? They make resolutions. I didn't even have to give you a hint. They make re resolutions, right? Perhaps trying to slough off the excesses of the holiday mad rush that is Thanksgiving to New Year's. We make resolutions. We make plans. We course correct. We set new goals. We chart a course for the new year. Perhaps we even offer thanks and gratitude for the year prior. Not a bad practice. At the outset of this new liturgical year, can I suggest that these are good spiritual practices as well, to make resolutions of a spiritual nature? Not a bad idea. To be more intentional with the life that God gave you? Not a bad idea. To make course corrections in your Christian life. Maybe even set some spiritual goals. That may sound odd. What about setting spiritual goals? What about being more disciplined in your faith? It's a new year after all. Maybe this is the time to do that. Why not make a fresh start in your spiritual life? More about that later. But it's a new year. In beginning a new year and in leaving ordinary, which means counted time, we have entered into extraordinary time. In the next several months of the church calendar, you'll notice that we're going to follow, <clears throat> pardon me, the life of Jesus really closely from the first Sunday of Advent today all the way through Pentecost Sunday, which is late May, last day in May. This is extraordinary time. It is a special time set aside to focus on and to be shaped deeply by the life of Christ, the life of Jesus, uh, thus the return of the vestments to celebrate the occasion today. We follow Jesus carefully, intentionally, and with all the curiosity that we can possibly muster. And our first step into the new year is, obviously, Advent. That's today. It's a penitential season, which not everyone associates Advent with penitence, but it is. That's what the purple color uh, means in the church calendar. And it is different than Christmas, okay? Advent is meant to actually prepare us for Christmas, though the retailers would disagree, would they not? I mean, aren't they telling you it's Christmas right now? Who knows when the Starbucks Red Cups came out? I do. The day after Halloween, November 1st. Christmas time, Christmas time. Folks, it's not Christmas yet. It's Advent right now, okay? And we're called to a different sort of time. We're called to a different sort of rhythm. We're called to a different calendar. Now, I think a church calendar is brilliant in its aims because every season prepares you for what's coming, Prepares you to receive what's next, okay? Lent prepares us for what? Holy Week, which culminates in Easter, okay? You need to do Good Friday to truly understand Easter Sunday if you want to receive the utter goodness in, uh, of Easter Sunday. So we need Advent to prepare us for the hope that is Christmas. So Advent prepares us to fully receive the good news of the Incarnation, which is what Christmas is all about. And preparation on the church calendar usually takes the form of repentance. So there's a call for change. There's a call for spiritual transformation. It's why Advent is sometimes called Little Lent, 
okay? Uh, and we're now entering an intentional season of self-reflection. It's a contemplative season, sort of an honest self-assessment during this season. Uh, and again, it's a contemplative, penitential season, Advent is. And it is so countercultural. If I haven't already made this point, if you haven't already grasped it, let me make it again. It's so countercultural, right, to the crazy hustle-bustle of the holidays. Man, my stuff just doesn't want to stay there. It's all right. Uh, how countercultural is Advent, right? Think about this. This is a season, as far as the world is concerned, that is marked by extreme busyness, excess, and consumerism, okay? Our faith, again, has called us to be countercultural. That's nothing new. Now, to be more specific about Advent, we're kind of whittling things down. It's a season when we anticipate the return of Jesus, his second coming, actually, his parousia, Advent is about cultivating a hunger to see our Lord face to face. And for all things to be made right, all things to be set right, cultivating a hunger for the Lord's return prepares us to welcome him with a yearning heart during Christmas. So given that, is it any wonder, really, that Advent themes are things like readiness, things like alertness, anticipation, hope, peace, and so on. And our various scripture passages today will lead us through some of those Advent themes, and they're going to aid us as we wade into the deep waters of Advent. So we're going to go through all four. Can you believe that? Don't worry. It's not an hour and a half sermon. It'll be short. But for example, let's take our psalm for today, 122. It's a pilgrimage psalm. It speaks of the glories of Jerusalem, where the temple was, the very house of God. And it speaks of that joy of arriving home and at their beloved city of Jerusalem. But why this psalm for Advent? You may have asked yourself that as you hear these readings. What's the connection? Well, I think verses 6 through 9 give us a thematic clue. Let me read them for you. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I'll say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The key word there, I believe, is peace. Peace. And in fact, Jerusalem actually means city of peace. At last, all the tribes of Israel will be at peace. At last, shalom or peace will reign in the land. There's great hope in this peace. Jesus himself bears a relevant title to this theme. He's the prince of what? Peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. When he returns, he will fully establish his reign and his peace. There's our Advent connection. There it is. Star that. He will judge rightly. He will bring justice, a duty that any good king will exercise. Peace is the fruit of the Lord's justice in the great salvation story. And when Jesus returns, his peace will not only reign in Jerusalem, which is the hope kind of in this psalm, but in all places, in heaven and on earth. His shalom, his peace, will be boundless. Psalm 122. Or what about our Old Testament passage? Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. Speaks of something similar. It begins with the talk of the love of Mount Zion. Come, let us go to the, the mountain of the Lord. It's that deep Jewish love of their beloved spiritual home, Jerusalem. It's set high up on the mountain. Like Psalm 122, it also speaks of judgment and justice followed by peace. Followed by peace. Listen to verse 4 in particular. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Ultimately, this speaks of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Uh, judgment is issued here. Disputes are settled. And then what follows? Well, I love this picture. The weapons of death and destruction, right? Sword and spear. They will be transformed into tools for actually cultivating life. Plowshares, pruning hooks. How about that? Plowshares and pruning hooks. In other words, death to life. Weapons literally become uh, garden tools. How about that? This is a return to Eden. This is a picture of restoration. And there will finally be peace amongst the nations. Listen to this. I just read it. Let me read it again. A nation shall not, uh, uh, nation shall not go against nation. And I love this. Neither shall they learn war anymore. There will be a new way. There will be peace. Not human peace, which we tend to sort of define on our own terms. This peace, this fruit of the reign of Jesus when he returns, is different. It's abiding and true, the fruit of justice and restoration. That's Isaiah. Pivoting a little bit, our New Testament epistle, Romans 13, 8 to 14, it begins with this call to love one another. And then it speaks of how living out this call of love fulfills uh, the law, right? And somewhat oddly, or so we think, this call to love is followed by a call to readiness. Love to readiness. We must be alert. We must be awake. The night's gone. Meaning that time when sinful hidden desires uh, and, and shame sort of have free reign. Instead, now the day is at hand. Salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. What a striking, wonderful phrase. We must then live in the light, shun the deeds of darkness. Paul exhorts us to put on Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. And elsewhere, Paul speaks of sort of like putting on the new man, right? In Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Here, even more directly, he bids us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, literally like clothing. Put on Jesus, put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But to return to Paul's call to love each other in the opening verses, 8 to 10, I think he's making a really important connection here. Loving each other, loving our neighbors, living at that call, actually readies us and prepares us. Love readies us and prepares us. There's your Advent connection, if you're curious. There's your Advent theme. Love is part and parcel of the preparation. If we're living as God calls us to live, loving as he calls us to love, we will be ready to meet him when he returns, right? If we're fulfilling the great commandment, loving God with the whole of our lives, loving our neighbor as ourselves, uh, guess what? We will be alert. We will be ready to receive him at his advent, at his return. How many of you guys, and I may date myself here a little bit, I don't know if this is still a thing, probably not. You ever seen this bumper sticker, Jesus is coming? What's it say after that? Look busy. Look busy. Who remembers that one? Mostly us older folks. Okay, that's cool. Uh, Jesus is coming. Look busy. Now, I'm always one to sort of look at the theology behind bumper stickers. I think that's fascinating. <clears throat> uh, this one begs us to either busy ourselves with sort of religiosity, you know, try to fool God into thinking we've been up to good things, or to like procrastinate to the very last minute. It's like Jesus is some... Uh, like a malevolent boss who's kind of coming around every now and again to try and catch you red-handed, right? Stick it to you because you've slacked off at the job. That is a culture of fear. Jesus is coming, look busy. That's a culture of fear, right? But fulfilling the law of love, as we're talking about here in Romans, means we don't have a reason to fear our Lord's return. 
Not at all. Why? Because love prepares us and readies us to receive him. Finally, our gospel passage, Matthew 24, 29 to 44. The most direct passage about the return, the advent of Jesus of, of the four, certainly. It begins, as you heard Fred read it, and goes on for a pretty good while with a rather magnificent, if not somewhat terrifying, apocalyptic vision of the second coming of Jesus. There are initial undertones of mourning, of judgment, of glory, of God's sovereign power. There's, it's like these divine fireworks that resound on earth. Now, Jesus speaks about reading the signs of his coming, similar to uh, the signs in creation that herald the changing of the seasons, the fig tree he talks about. Or like, uh, think of it in this way. Uh, each new season is preceded by outward signs, divine hints. Leaves turn colors and they fall off. That signifies a changing of seasons. Animals hibernate. That, sim that tells us there's a changing of seasons. So Jesus begs us or exhorts us or something to read the signs of his coming and observe those. But he's all the more clear that even if we can read the signs, we will not know the exact day nor uh, the hour of his return. He gives some pretty ordinary pictures amidst all this, these massive sort of wide view uh, images that he gives. He gives a very ordinary picture in the midst of this of people going about their lives, just doing mundane things, doing what we do, right? Until he comes again, right? Just in the days of Noah and the flood, when people were going about their life as if nothing was afoot. The picture he offers here is, again, very ordinary. So two men are, are laboring away at their work. They're doing their thing, right? Uh, one goes to be with Jesus, the other's left. Poof, just like that. Two women at work in their households. But one is taken and one is left. Jesus lays before us, yet again, what it means to be wholly devoted to him or to reject him. The result, some are prepared for his coming. Some are ready for his advent and others are not. Therefore, his call is to be awake. Advent theme, right? Awake, spiritually alert. Don't fall asleep at the wheel of your own life. <laughs> be ready. Be vigilant. Be watchful. For the Lord's return will ultimately be a surprise to us all. But, per our Romans passage, if we're living as God calls us to live, surprised or not, we don't have to fear that. <laughs> we don't have a reason to fear. While we might be surprised, you can still be ready, if that makes sense. You can still be prepared, even though you might be surprised. So friends, my brothers, my sisters, as we enter this Advent season, a season of anticipation, a season of self-evaluation, a season of readiness, alertness, uh, repentance, preparedness, hope, anticipation, all those things, how will you orient yourself in this new year? You think about these things. How will you orient yourself? Uh, will you give in to the prevailing culture? Will you be swept along by the consumeristic tidal wave of excess? How many of us reach... January 1st, and kind of go, whew, man, I survived Thanksgiving to New Year's, uh, right? So it's time to diet, it's time to get back to a sane pace of life, time to pay off the credit card that you cranked up, right? Or if this is a painful season for you, which it is for many, this is a hard season for some folks, will you anesthetize yourself with stuff, with the giving and the getting? with the food and the drink and the busyness. December is a difficult season for many people. And uh, retailers make a lot of money off misery in that regard. We give into the things like gluttony to deal with the pain of loss and regret. 
But you don't have to do that this year, do you? No. But I will make the case the world is very much with us this time of year. The world is too much with us this time of year. Every one of us has the opportunity to live a very countercultural life during December. But I have to say, if you want to live differently than the world around you, you will have to fight for it this season. You'll have to be active. You will have to be proactive, I should say. Uh, if you expect for December and Advent to be different than all the mad rush that it is, you'll have to make intentional choices and set some boundaries, and you'll have to stick to them. It won't be easy. I'll tell you that right now. I struggle with it all the time. You'll have to fight the tides. You'll have to go against the grain to do this. My advice this new year is this. Begin as you want to continue. Begin as you want to continue. Let me give you an example. What if you intentionally slowed down in Advent? Christmas, maybe too. What if you intentionally didn't pack your calendar to the gills? What if you intentionally didn't give in to the various excesses that surround us? I mean, they're just so readily available, right? Rather than giving up or giving in, what if you lived out your love of neighbor, right? What if you gave away more than you bought in this season and not just within your own family, right? So what I'm getting around to and sort of hammering at from, from different angles is what spiritual New Year's resolutions are you willing to make this year? Are you willing to put a stake in the ground and to live differently in the new year? That's my challenge for every single one of us as we begin anew in this year starting today. So we're do something a little bit different. Usually the sermon ends, bam, lock, stock, and barrel. We're into the creed. I'm going to actually give us some moments of silence, and I'm going to leave you with some questions. And here's my encouragement to you. Grab a writing utensil if you don't have one. Grab one out. Take the little insert from your bulletin, and I'm going to give you three questions. And my hope is that in the moments of silence, perhaps God will speak to you in these things. He may not. He may choose to speak to these as you ruminate on them over the season, right? So a good place to put these might be on your fridge. Tack them up. Maybe in your Bible. Sure, good place there too. Maybe on the dashboard of your car, though please read when your car is stopped, okay? And keep this in mind. Begin as you want to continue. Begin as you want to continue. So here's the three questions. First one, Lord, what do you want for and from me in this new year? I'll give you a minute to write down. Lord, what do you want for and from me in this new year? Fair question. We good? We do number two? I don't know how fast y'all write. I'll give you a little bit. Lord, what do you want for and from me in this new year? Two. I think this matters. I don't want to gloss over this. What do I desire most deeply in this new year? What do I desire most deeply in this new year? Our desires tell us a lot about the state of our hearts if we pay attention to them. What do I desire most deeply in this new year? I believe our desires at heart ultimately 
speak of our hunger for God, even when they're misguided. So it's good to pay attention to them. What do I desire most deeply in this new year? Thirdly, lastly, corporate question. This isn't all individual because we're one body. We're one family. Lord, what do you want for King of Kings this year? Lord, what, what do you want for King of Kings this year? Not what does Pastor Joel want, not what does the vestry want, not what do my leaders want, not what do I want. Lord, what do you want for King of Kings in this new year? Begin as you want to continue. I'm going to give us a few moments of silence, and after that, we'll rise and say the creed.